Shelton, your host, and I want to thank you for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, as you can see, this week I am joined by guest Susan Dones, and Susan's claim to fame, among many other things, <laughs> is that she is a Nexium survivor, and uh, in fact got out before um, a lot of other people kind of realized what was going on. She started seeing some things, and I pulled up her website, uh, susandones.com, which you all should check out because it's actually a pretty interesting site. And here is what she describes herself or describes her history with Nexium as, and as a little bit of a summary, I thought I might give you guys to intro this, and then uh, Susan and I are going to have a conversation. So uh, she says here that I left Nexium in 2009. But it wasn't until almost two decades in 2017 it burned to the ground. Earlier, the New York State Attorney General was working with us. They collected a lot of frickin' info from us and poof, they were gone. I was sued by Nexium, filing over 200 fake claims against me. I won their bogus lawsuit against me, representing myself against seven of their lawyers. I have lots of battle scars from being in the Nexium cult and the battle to take them down after leaving. Susan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's an interesting uh, journey that you and I both have been on. Absolutely. We have definitely yeah. walked in down roads. Other people, <laughs> you know, sort of maybe sometimes see from a distance, maybe sometimes a little closer, but not necessarily, you know, don't always know what they're looking at. Right, uh, yeah. it, can, it can look very normal at the beginning of the road. <laughs> you know? It can look a little bit like, oh, no, this is just another happy path down life. No big deal here. Until suddenly the, the clouds loom and the, and the you know, the, the thunder rumbles. How did you, I guess, just kind of, you know, starting from the beginning and sort of giving the audience a little bit of background here, what, you know, you got out in 2009, how long were you in and what was, you know, Nexium is not a religion, it was never a religious thing. What was it presented to you as and what was its appeal? Well, I, I went in in uh, December of 2000 and it was... Uh, it was like an executive success program. That's what it was called. It was called executive success programs. And I was actually in Detroit, Michigan at a program called Life Skills. And I was looking for, uh, I had a wellness center. And so I have a master's degree in psychology and I um, was a licensed, uh, still am a licensed massage therapist. And I was looking for, something that would a, a group kind of program that would help people like heal from wounds that they could get through uh like group therapy kind of thing not group therapy but more like um you know kind of a talk therapy kind of you know like a success program that could help them through different aspects of their life if they were you know, like in my wellness center, we had a personal trainer mm -hmm. that I worked with. Mm -hmm. And then we had a holistic ex um, 
escat uh I, mean, I know i'm going to say the word wrong and it's just part of my dyslexia but a skincare person uh-huh. you know esthetician esthetician then we had a, a holistic chiropractor and then several massage therapists and stuff and um ever since i was a little kid i was interested in why people reacted the way they did you know and and it always puzzled me and probably because i grew up in a family that uh had in an extended family that had um, alcohol problems, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where, where people kind of went to, to solve their, their issues, you know, they went to alcohol and that always puzzled me. And um, so early on in life, I was kind of like, why do people do what they do and and stuff like that? And, and I remember telling my dad one day that I wanted to be a social worker you know, right away that was poo-pooed because social workers didn't make a lot of money. Not like my parents made a lot of money anyways, kind of thing. And so all my life, I've kind of been a seeker in like why people feel the way they do and why they react the way they do and stuff like that. And so I was at this workshop because I was looking for something to bring to the Pacific Northwest. And I had gone to a lot of workshops and stuff like that, but I didn't want to invent the will kind of thing. I wanted to find the wheel and bring it to the Pacific Northwest. And so I heard about this woman in a workshop and I went there with a couple of my friends and the whole time we were there, I mean, Friday night at the intro, she said that this is the last workshop I'm going to teach. And then I'm going to go to Albany, New York to study with Keith Ranieri. And we all looked at each other because we went there specifically with the idea to bring her to the Pacific Northwest. Mm. And she agreed to that, you know, like, why don't you come take our workshop and see if you like it? And then, you know, I'll come to the Pacific Northwest. And we're all like, wait, that wasn't our agreement, you know? So all weekend long, she kept talking about Keith Ranieri and executive success programs. (laughs) So while we were there, we got on a conference call with her, uh, with her about this intensive that they were gonna teach in Albany, New York. And that's what they called it, an intensive. Yeah, it was a 16-day intensive and it was $6,000. And right away, you know, it's kind of like $6,000. I had never spent that kind of money except in college. But um, mm-hmm. if 16 days of college cost $6,000, I would... <laughs> yeah, like, nobody would be going. Nobody would be going. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, my friends decided they were going to go. And at first I wasn't going to go, but they had this program. It was called, if you enrolled three people, you got your money back. Really? You know? Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, if it really was what they said it was, then, you know, I could probably enroll three people and get my money back. And so finally I decided if I don't go, I'm going to miss out on something. You know how you get kind of that, kind of thing where you keep listening to these conference calls and stuff. And back then, Google didn't exist. Oh, you know, sure. This was literally a conference call, <laughs> not some VoIP call or Zoom call or something. Yeah, well, Google didn't exist. And right. so, you know, trying to find out who Keith Raniere was, was almost impossible back then. And, um, you know, executive success programs hadn't been in business that long. You know, I think it started in 98 and it was just this um, grassroots program and stuff. So off we went, you know, that kind of thing. And then they also had this thing where they wanted open satellite centers, you know, because oh. the only 
program that was available was in Albany, New York. And so I wanted to start this thing and they wanted to have satellite centers and they built everything up like shysters kind of do, you know, kind of thing. So off we went and my friends, my two friends and I decided that, you know, if it was good that, you know, maybe we could start a satellite center and stuff. So off wow. we went. And so you wizard- were already in a kind of a place of, I'm really trying to find something that's going to make a difference, going to help me get these goals accomplished. And some, what was it about this that, that was like, oh, this is the thing I need to put down this kind of money for? What, what was it that made you think this is what I need to be doing? Mm-hmm. Well, they had some good marketing material, you know, and one of the things was, is that, you know, Keith was one of the top three problem solvers in the world, and he was in the Guinness World Book of Records, and he was a triple graduate from Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute, which is equivalent to MIT. And, uh, you know, it, there were a lot of really good um, testimonials from business people in the, you know, the Albany area, and then some other uh, people uh, that I can't remember who they are now, but impressive testimonials, that kind of thing. And then some people who were athletes, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Okay. So they had, they had some really good marketing material. And when I thought about cults back then, I thought of the religious kind of cults, right? right. You know, the, you know, the Harry Krishnas and, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And so when I walked in the door, you know, that's what I kind of looked for. And when you walked in the door, you never met Keith Raniere. You know, you met people and they they showed up in business attire and stuff like that. And there were a couple of what I would call kind of red flags. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of the classes you took was rules and rituals. And Nancy Salzman was called prefect. Her title at the school was prefect. But, you know, there were ways to kind of, you know, what other things have titles, you know, like, you know, uh, like I was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, you know, right out of high school and you called people, you know, like commander or captain or admiral and, and stuff like that. So they they threw the title thing out right out the window. And Keith was called Vanguard and Vanguard is the leader of a philosoph- uh, philosophical movement kind of thing. But you only called him Vanguard if he showed up to the center. Outside of the center, you called him Keith. Oh, you know? okay. Okay. That's good you to know. know. <laughs> yeah. And outside of the center, you didn't call Nancy Prefect. You called her Nancy, you know, right. kind of thing. Sort of, and akin, then I, sort of akin to L. Ron Hubbard calling himself Source with a capital S. Right. Literally, uh, yeah. I am Source. That's what he said. But nobody ran around <laughs> saying, Source, I have, you know, compliance to this order. <laughs> you know, they would say Ron, <laughs> right? So, of course. Right. And then, you know, um, or like I took martial arts, you know, and and you called sensei sensei in the building. But outside of that, you know, like if you're at a, I know, potluck, you didn't call him sensei, you called him Bruce. Right. You know, the kind right. of thing. So not too much of a red flag, really. Much yeah. At all. Yeah. In yeah. The context yeah. Or like, yeah. like when you came in the, the training room, you didn't wear your shoes into the training room, but, and then you bowed when you came into the but the same thing, you know, like martial arts, you didn't, you bowed when you went into the dojo. That's right. It's a very ritualized go, process. Yeah, yeah. But only when you went into the dojo, you didn't bow when you came into the room, right, you know, the building right. kind of thing. And then they had sashes that you wore, you know, to denote your rank within the company. And now that was, I was going to ask you about that. Cause to me, I thought, <laughs> 
Now that's actually weird. <laughs> but what was your impression? Well, you know, at first it was kind of like, well, that is strange. But then they they talk about that in the class, you know, your your rules and rituals class. And it's kind of like, well, where else do you do that? You know, and so people brought up, well, the brownies, you know, our Girl Scouts are, you know, in the military, you have rank in like in martial arts, you have rank, sure, you know, sure. so they have this way and, and they don't say, well, in the military, they say, well, where else do you do that? And people in class are piping up. Oh, well, police officers have rank. You know? Oh, my God. How? Yeah, that's a lot more clever. Yeah. So they don't say that they let the class do that. And so what they do is they go around and they let the class demystify. Right. You know, That's right. so like, like when people are watching shows like The Vow or Seduced or something like that, you know, um, you know, you're watching this fire hose of information like, oh my God, they had sashes, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> But when you're when you're taking the class, you know, and they they slowly drip on you, yeah. like oh, we're going to give you these sashes, you know. But they don't understand that you've just taken a two hour class to demystify the sashes, you know, that kind of stuff. And like like when you get promoted to from a white sash, which is a student sash, to a coach, which is when you've enrolled two people into the program, you know, you're you like now you're proud of this thing that you've earned, you know, kind of thing, you know, Status. yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Be, yeah. You know, or like when you've gone from a coach to a orange satch, which is proctor, you've worked your ass off to earn that thing. And so now you're so proud and everybody does. Ooh, look at you, Proctor Dones. Look at all the work you've done to earn that thing, you know, because of all the indoctrination. I mean, I can't help but look at my degree on the wall and go, yep, I get it. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. When, like when you graduate from college and you That's walk right. across with, with your cap and your gown. I mean, we've normalized the cap and a gown in the little tassel. And when you walk across the stage, you flip your tassel to the other side because we've normalized a cap and a gown in a tassel. That's right. Right. That's right. And they went. Like when you get your doctorate degree, you wear the long sash, right? Because we've normalized that in our culture. That's right. We don't think that's weird to like have a doctoral sash. Exactly. Isn't right? that funny? Isn't that funny? <laughs> so, so what happened? Uh, so uh, please carry on. <laughs> Right. So then, you know, by the time the 16 days is over, you've taken five modules a day, you know, and, and, and the class is all taught indoctrination wise or inductive wise. So they'll like, you'll have a, a class on like, say, honesty and disclosure. Mm -hmm. And so what they do is they'll teach a little bit of the class and then they break you into small breakout groups with a coach. And so you'll go to a different part of the, you know, to the, training center and you're in little groups and they'll say well what is honesty and they don't tell you what honesty is they let you explore it like yeah maybe there's five or six students in a group with a coach and so you go like well honesty is blah 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 and everybody else will be like well honesty is blah 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 and you've like thoroughly explored what you think is honesty mm -hmm. right then you go back to the big room and the trainer will go if it's nancy salzman 
she'll go, well, honesty is blah. And she'll read off this piece of paper. And if it's Nancy's not there, then you shove in a tape. Well, back then it was VCRs, but then they went to DVDs, right? Sure. And then Nancy will tell you what honesty is. What? How interesting. Do you realize? I did not realize this This back and forth was a part of the intro services or beginning part of the Nexium process because there is a process very similar in Scientology. Well, yeah, because Keith studied Ron L. Hubbard. Yeah, L. Ron Hubbard. That's right. Yeah. Right. Anyway, please carry on. I just, I just find it. it I'm right. gonna find so many parallels here. I know I am, and I'll just comment them right. as I go. But I'm not right. gonna try to make yeah, a no. Big no, no, deal no, out that's of it. fine. Yeah. Well, that's what we're here to do. We're here to have <laughs> have a little chat. You know? Yeah. So the thing, so the thing is, is that what they do is they implant what they want to implant into your brain about all these different concepts: honesty, disclosure. When is being? When is not being honest a good thing like you know like they bring up world war ii like so during world war ii if you're hiding jews in your attic or your basement and the nazis come and knock on your door and say are you hiding jews here to be honest is not a good thing oh sure so various contexts right. in which honesty or dishonesty are explored right and yeah. really what they're doing is implanting into your brain that um there are certain times when not being honest is a good thing. And really yeah. what they're implanting into your brain is, is to um, strategic line is a good thing. Exactly. It's the beginning step on the road to accepting strategic lying in Scientology, acceptable truths. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So like when I left Nexium, I had certain information about the cult that, was destructive to the cult mm -hmm. right you know because nancy salzman told me about at that time when i left mexico was the big cash cow for nexium they had three large centers and the mexicans loved nexium you know because they had changed the name when um when sarah in uh, Sara and Claire Broffman came in. It was a it was a big coup for Nexium because they had billions. I mean, m millions of dollars. They yeah. were two of the richest p young women in America, and so they had trust funds that were just endless amounts of money for um, uh, Nancy Salzman and Keith Raniere. And so, and they opened their checkbooks to them, you know, and then when their father found out about that, he became very angry and he had taken a five day and, and was very happy with the five day. But you have to remember the first 16 days of the curriculum was nebulous. You didn't know anything about it was a cult. Oh no, totally. It always has to be that way. The beginning has to be something that you really do walk away feeling like you've really benefited in a significant way. Right. Yeah. And so like when Nancy Salzman says in the vow Two, 17,000 people took our program and got a good result. Where are those 17,000 people? Most of those 17,000 people either took a five day, 16 day, maybe a one day, maybe a two day program or, you know, they never, most of those people never met Keith or Nancy because they took it at an outline center. Right. So they didn't even join the cult of Nexium. 
It, you know, well, they exactly. Any yeah. more than people coming in and doing a communications class or a personal values and integrity, and that's all they do in Scientology. There's some beginning course, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and then that's it. Then they walk out right. the door. They were never a Scientologist, but they sure do get counted as one. <laughs> right, right. Yep. So when she, she says that, what people in, in some of the people that are still loyal to Nexium say, 17,000 people took our program, you know, but they're not, what, what people don't realize is those 17,000 people weren't in the cult of Nexium, right? you know, because of the fact that they never met Keith or Nancy. They took a five day, maybe took a 16 day. They weren't indoctrinated into what I call the cult of Nexium. And so, um, because they never went beyond those 16 day program kind of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, and maybe they got some good results out of that. They learned to be better communicators. Maybe it helped their marriage. Maybe it helped their business, that kind of thing. And so um, when when Claire, Claire and Sara came in, their dad had taken a five-day. He got some good results out of it. But then he found out that their daughters had loaned Keith and Nancy $2 million without a contract. Oh, I can see why that would upset him. And then also, Nancy and um, Keith had no way of paying that money back mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, their company did not have the resources to pay that money back. And what Sara told me was is that Nancy had talked them into coaching them personally for a year, a million dollars a piece for a year to personally coach them. And I looked at her because she had taken me to Ireland to coach an intensive for her. And she's telling me this while we're in Ireland. And I looked at her and I said, a million dollars to coach you for a year? She said, oh yeah, Nancy's a million dollar coach. And I, in my head, I'm thinking like, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> and this was all, and this was late. This was years after you were involved. Well, this was, yeah, this, I had been involved for a while and yeah. I'm thinking like, oh my God, you are, you are a sucker. Mm. You know, she goes, yeah, we are going to, my sister and I are going to prove why Nancy's worth a million dollars. I'm thinking like, man, you just got taken to the cleaners lady, mm. mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like she is not worth a million. She's, she, she is not worth a million dollars. You know, wow. every time I go back to Albany, cause I went back and forth to Albany a lot because I was a center owner and as a field trainer. And so, you know, I had to go back to Albany at least once a month, but a lot of times I went, had to go back twice a month. And so every time I went to Albany, I got summons to Nancy's house, you know, and they were trying to work me over because I wasn't bought in. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, I was a problem for them. Right. And so, um, and so I got, summons to her house and then because i was a massage therapist she'd be like oh could you get me a massage you know well i'll get i'll get you paid and then but i never got paid you know and so you know and i'd say um um you know when am i going to get paid oh well i'll make sure ken gets you paid <laughs> and so i left there being owed thousands of dollars for these massages i never got paid for oh my god <laughs> meanwhile she's pulling in a million from you know these people <laughs> Right. Can't afford but, to pay for a massage. Nice. Yeah. So Edgar got mad about this. And so there ends up being this Forbes article 
you know, that um, called the strangest, uh, the strangest coaching program in the world or something like that. And in there, Edgar Broffman calls Nexium a cult. Oh, he did. Okay. So this yes. was, this was on the tail of this whole 2 million thing and him getting pissed off about it. And I imagine the daughters were kind of like, we don't care or what, what happened? Well, just curious. Uh, well, um, that was Keith's collateral over, over the girls, but it was actually, um, especially over Claire mm. because she's the one who told her dad about the loan. Mm -hmm. So then um, he's like, well, this is your breach against me, blah, blah, blah. And he used that as, as um, emotional collateral over them. Oh, did he? Okay. So he was leveraging that as a guilt action as a, oh, you've done something against the group now. So now you owe us kind of thing. Right. Ah, okay. You've so troubled Vanguard. You You've brought trouble to Vanguard. How dare you? <laughs> well, the whole company. Yeah, be yeah, yeah. Be yeah, because that was the first bad press that they had gotten. Ah, okay, okay. Right? Yeah. So that was kind of like the cat out of the bag kind of thing. Right. You know, Let like, me clarify here. When did that happen? I think it was in 2003. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So just a just a couple of years after you got involved. So how far how far down the rabbit hole were you at that point? Oh, I was a center owner, and um, yeah, I was. Okay, you so know, you went all was, in pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. It, their collateral over me was my debt that I was in. You know, oh, because, how did that work? Well, because um, you didn't get paid to open a center; it was all on your own dime, and you mm -hmm. had to have have. They had a program called ethos it, ethos was like a gym membership that people enrolled into and then you could come to weekly classes if you had a center nearby and then you got um, assigned a coach to work with on a weekly basis and until you had a hundred ethos centers or a hundred ethos students enrolled in your center that the center didn't make a penny oh because all the money went to keith or you had to send when, it or it just wasn't making any no, money? No, it didn't make any money. When you enrolled into um, Nexium, 100% of the money went to Albany. It, oh, well, you opened it, it, you opened a center mm -hmm. to forward Nexium and deliver Nexium services. And you started doing so. And it was basically a volunteer service until you met a certain target. Yeah. Well, what I got paid on is I got paid on, I got paid sales commission, mm -hmm. but that went to Nick. When I enrolled somebody, I sent the application to Albany. And then the next month they paid me my sales commission. And then I became a field trainer, which is, I became a, a field trainer is like an um, overseer of salespeople. Okay. So I made a per percentage of every salesperson's commissions. It's kind of kind of like the an, salespeople you hired or brought in. Yeah, that I I brought in. Yeah, right. Okay. And then when you became a proctor, you made um, a percentage of all the people in your organization. So okay. So, so you made ten percent on your proctor organization. I made ten percent on all my sales and then i made 10 percent on all my field trainers and then they had some overrides and stuff like that but you had to pay all these overrides too 
What what's an override? So an override is like Barbara Jeske was my field trainer. Mm-hmm. And so I had to pay her $380 every month mm-hmm. um, on my field trainer status. So she made $380 before I made any money. Oh, interesting. Because she's your field trainer. She's up above you. Right. And Got so it. She I wasn't the field so, trainer working for you. You're a field trainer. Right. Got right. It. it. Okay. And then if I developed any field trainers, then I would make an override on all of their field trainer money. Okay. So right? this is this is very faux MLM structured. Very. And, and so the thing is, is that Keith was barred from <clears throat> the New York State Attorney General from ever starting another MLM based on his um, business consumer byline. Yep. So that's why Nexium could never be in his name. He had put it in Nancy Salzman's name. Got it. Because he right? was, of course, hyper aware of exactly the structure of his company. <laughs> right. But it's so funny. In order to get to each level of like coach, proctor, student, each had four stripes you know, of promotion. So when you had a coach, you got four stripes. Then you went to proctor or to coach. Oh, yeah. okay. So these are yeah. like little sub ranks along the way. Right. Got it. And so when you got to coach, you could get two stripes, but to get your third stripe, you had to not be attached to any MLM. Right. So like, say you came in and you were in Mary Kay. Oh, right? or you were doing Herbalife or Amway or something like that. Right. You had, you had to dump right. all that. Yeah, you had to give up. And people kept saying, well, how is how is how is Nexium not an MLM? And I kept saying, I don't know. You'll have to ask Keith. Because when I would lay out the sales um aspect of it and how you can make money by doing Nexium, yeah. people kept saying, Well, how is this not an MLM? And I kept saying, I don't know. You'll have to ask Keith and Nancy that because I don't understand how it's not. Hmm. Right. Right. And were, so were you when, thinking when, when you would answer questions like that, just so I'll kind of understand where you were at on it, did, did, do you think MLMs or this structure that, that maybe there was something kind of off about this whole thing? Or were you uh, kind of still in the, no, no, this system works. We just need to make it work. No, I thought it was totally, I thought it was totally an MLM. And oh, I kept, okay. you know, I would go to field trainer meetings back in Albany and I would say, I think this is an MLM. And then when I went to, after my first 16 day program, they had four days of meetings of if you wanted to open a center, right? And so we would go to these meetings, they would lay out the pay plan if you wanted to open a center and stuff like that. And and they kept saying, this is renegotiable. You know, mm. Keith said that this is renegotiable. And so when I found out there wasn't enough money to support a center, I I went to Nancy because you didn't have access to Keith, right? Mm. Unless you were like really high up or really in his um, stable of women, which thank God I never was in his stable of women. Yeah. So I went to Nancy and I said, your pay plan doesn't work. And she said, well, why? Why doesn't it? And I said, because the centers don't make money to even really pay the center bill. I said, if I wasn't a field trainer, I said, 
I would have to close up my center because it doesn't make enough money to pay off the debt I went into to develop the center. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I said, I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping up paying the bills kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, I went into debt because you guys promised me that this would make me money. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I'm not really making enough money to, I'm having to rob Peter to pay Paul to pay, pay the overhead. And I said, so I said, I want to renegotiate the percentages. I said, you guys are making 70% off of everything I make. And I said, I'm, I'm like broke all the time. I said, I don't think that's fair. So when was this, when did you have this conversation with her? Oh, I think it was about 2005. Oh, okay. Okay. And and what was her response? How'd this go? And she said, well, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it. And I said, well, who's we? She said, well, I'll have a conversation with Keith about it. And so, you know, I, I, I don't, and I kept saying, well, when are we going to, when are we going to have that conversation? So then finally went to Barbara Boucher because she was on, she was on the sales committee and she was on the field trainer committee. And I kept saying, this is not working. I said, the field trainers that are in Albany are making bank because Nancy pays for all of the sinner's money. You guys don't have to support a sinner. I said, and then the other center owners were all wealthy Mexicans. <laughs> you know, oh. they had money. They had money when they walked in the door. Right. I said, and I was the only outlying center besides that. And I said, you know, you, you guys just think I'm the trailer trash center, you know, kind of thing. I said, mm. but this doesn't work. You know, it, you're never going to have, <clears throat> you're never going to have a center unless it's somebody who has wealth when they walk in the door. And maybe that's what you're looking for, but this doesn't work. How, you know? how suspicious were you at that point, 2005, in terms of, because I remember very, very clearly all the way up until almost the end, really. I mean, all the way up until 2011, I was sitting at a desk trying to calculate how Scientology organizations could be profitable and more importantly, pay their staff. Because the biggest problem we had with getting new staff was they didn't get paid shit. And I'd been doing this for years, right? And I was really kind of sick of it. And I thought there's got to be some way this could be done better. So it was always in my mind, not there's something nefarious going on here. It's more like this structure just doesn't really make sense and we can change this and make it better. And it never really, I never really connected the dot while I was still in. Well, maybe somebody at the top is screwing with this system or keeping it this way on purpose. I was always just trying to fix it, make it better. Let's make it better. We can do better. That was kind of my attitude. I'm wondering, was that kind of how you were approaching it or where were you coming from? Well, yeah, I kept, I kept thinking that, um, you know, they would throw these parties for Keith's birthday, you know, and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars were spent on like bringing in like expensive entertainment, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and then Nancy's birthday party, you know, like thousands of dollars, they would bring in like, you know, famous recording artists. And I'd be like, why are we doing this when 
you know, like I'm broke. And then they pay people to work at the Nexium Center back in Albany and they're paying them like next to nothing, you know, to, to work, you know, and, and like systems are broken yeah, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, they would have coaches coach intensives and not pay them anything. And then they would have hard times getting coaches. And I asked Nancy, I said, you know, like the head trainer makes like buku money and, um, you know, and co you ask your coaches to come. Well, coaches, you know, they get paid. They just get paid by experience. And I said, yeah, but the coaches are not getting promoted in their, um, you know, they've coached intensives forever and they can't get promoted because they're just not good salespeople, mm -hmm. you know, and they don't make anything on their sales commissions because you keep changing, you keep, you know, putting the, the, you know, their requirements, you keep putting them out farther and farther and farther and stuff like that. Mm. It's, and it, it, so they can't get promoted and then you won't pay them, you know, like $15 an hour to come coach an intensive. And like, you know, it, it's like, yeah, out of yeah, all this money you guys are pulling in, you can't even pay these guys even a minimum wage for their work? I mean, Well, not only wow, that, but they, you know? and I kept saying, why do you guys keep suing all these people? You know, and, and oh, wait a minute. Just, What's this now? Suit? Lawsuits? What? Yeah. and the, <laughs> This she was just happening blew, too? She just blew a gasket when I brought up the lawsuits. Huh. You know, she said, you just don't, you know, she had this squeaky voice when she got really mad about stuff. She said, you just don't understand, you know, you know, they're attacking us and they're attacking Keith. And she brought up, she tried to compare Keith with Gandhi, you know, and I started laughing and she said, <laughs> <You "Why did? laughs> are she said, why are you laughing? And I said, Keith is no Gandhi. Right. And, and I said, I said, he would have rather gone and sat in prison. You know, yeah. I said, you know, he went to the salt mines and he took a beating. I said, I don't see Keith doing any of that shit. Mm -hmm. You know, he's too busy out having sex. And then she blew another gasket and she said, we don't talk about that. And I said, well, then he shouldn't bring it to the center. Wow. So you were really never backed off from telling Nancy what was on your mind. And she said, what are you talking about? And I said, we've talked about this before. I said, I've asked you several times, is, is he having sex with so-and-so? And you keep saying, well, we don't talk about that. And I said, Nancy, I said, if I'm picking up on it, other people have to be picking up on it. And then I'll say, is he having sex with so-and-so? And you say, well, we don't talk about that. And I said, but it's obvious you know, mm -hmm. and then, you know, he'll be amorous with so-and-so for a certain period of time. And then they leave. And then you say, well, she left and she stole from us. I said, how many people can he be sleeping with that is a thief? You know? Wow. So you were actually right in there seeing right through what this guy was doing. Well, it wasn't that hard. I mean, it's not rocket science. You well, can tell no, when somebody's... I mean, just from my own experience, I'm telling you, the power of cognitive dissonance in this particular area can be quite amazing how people can turn a blind eye to this very easily, shockingly easily. So it's well, it's kind of refreshing for me to talk to somebody who was in it going, this is bullshit, <laughs> you know? Well, at the time, I thought it was consensual. I didn't know the whole setup uh, sure. around it. Sure, sure, you know, sure. Of course, I, I didn't. 
I didn't know the, the entire setup around it right. that that went on. But what I found out is is that Pam Kafrids, who has passed away since then, um, is Keith would be attracted to somebody, mm-hmm. and Pam Kafrids would pimp him, pimp the person, and so Pam would go to the woman and say, you know. Keith is very lonely and he's the vanguard and, you know, he needs somebody that he can confide in, you know, and be friends with And um, you know, but because he's the, you know, he's the leader, you know, it needs to remain silent, you know, under wraps, you know, kind of thing. And um, would you go on a walk with him? And of course the woman's going to go, oh, well, of course I'll go on a walk with him. You know, and then so Keith would go on a walk with the woman and the whole seduction thing would take place. And, you know, I think when a woman, I think men that are predators can tell when a woman is, um, has low self esteem, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it can be victimized. Mm-hmm. What, and so do you think Keith would choose the targets? Uh, uh, yeah, he would choose yeah. the targets, okay. you know, and they had yeah. to fit in within his profile, Yep. you know, and then the whole seduction thing would start to take place, you know, mm-hmm. and then it would be like, you know, if we are going to have a sexual relationship, you need to keep it between you and I, mm-hmm. you know, because I am the vanguard, you know, and, you know, women will get jealous if they find out, you know, that we're having a sexual relationship because, there are women out there who want to have a sexual relationship with me. And of course she's going to keep it nice and quiet. Right. You know? And so then they would start a sexual relationship and then eventually the woman would catch on that she was not in a monogamous relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And then they would have a reaction and then the team would come in. Nancy Salzman, Lauren Salzman, Karen Unter, Reiner, Pam, Kafrids. They would come in and start to work this woman over. Like, why do you need to own him? Why do you oh, need boy. ownership over him? Right. You know, kind of thing. And then they would work him, work this woman over. And then if she didn't comply, then they would work her over to leave. Okay. Quietly. Quietly. Right. Right. And, and then I guess if, they, she, if they wouldn't get quiet, if they wouldn't be quiet, then that was when the threats and the lawsuits would come out. Yeah. Well, some, some of them got sued, but usually they would, they, because they had low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. They would leave quietly. Right. It and then what the community would do, the inner circle community would do is they would badmouth the person. Right. That's you know, right. You can't gotta person. tarnish the good name so nobody will believe them. Right. How it's the premeditation of that is what's so frightening, is what's so like shocking, you know, that a bunch of women would would enable a sexual predator in such a blatant way. Uh, do you, what, what's, what, how do you look at that or think about that? Because I look at it and I just go, this guy must have been amazing in person to be able to have a group of women enable his sexual predation. Well, I think he had, he had, he had decades of practice of doing that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, I mean, there have been people that went to grade school with him that have talked about what it was like to be around him, Oh, you know? And uh, so he, I mean, he was very smart at, at conning people, 
you know, and then he, 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 he was that way in college. You know, he went to college very young because he's actually pretty smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so he did it in college. And then when he started CBI, he had women that he had, you know, a troop of women in CBI. And then he brought them into, in between CBI and Nexium, he had another company called National Health Network that he couldn't be the head of because of his New York State Attorney General thing. So he put Tony Natale in charge of that. Mm. You know, and then when that wasn't really making enough money and stuff like that because it didn't take off that well, then he he brought Nancy Salzman in and started the groundwork for executive success slash Nexium programs, and um, um, kind of left Tony in the lurch with National Health Network kind of thing. And there was about a I think it was about a six month overlap between the two. Mm. of where Tony kind of came into the first part of executive success programs, but she still had national health network kind of thing that fell apart. And then she, she left the two different companies and then, um, and so he just had, he had a long-term circle of people from CBI that he brought over into, um, into Nexium with him, mm. you know, Pam Kafords, Barbara Jeske, Karen Unterreiner. Oh, I don't think I realized some of the original people in the Nexium operation had come from his earlier companies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when, when there were um, three of us that worked with the New York state attorney generals, and one of the things that we worked with was on the fact that Nexium was a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. And the connection between Nancy Salzman and Keith Raniere and stuff. And we thought we had them, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in, in regards to running this pyramid scheme. Like I had the whole Phil Trainer book about how it was set up as a pyramid scheme. Mm. And we thought we, we had them. I think it was in 2012. Matter of fact, I was in my lawsuit and I had to go to my judge in camera under seal. The the New York State Attorney, I said, you have to send me a subpoena. <laughs> You know, because I'm in court and I'm, you know, have a gag order to not share any Nexium's documents. I said, so you have to send me a subpoena that I can take to my judge. It's called in camera where. um, Oh, okay, okay. Under seal so that Nexium doesn't know that I'm showing you these documents. Right, right. so, So that they don't get an idea that they're being investigated. Right. Let me let me back up a second because I definitely have a lot of questions for you about that whole attorney general investigation and why it, you know, was dropped or what, why never nothing ever happened with it. But I want to know more about that. But first, I want to know when when Nancy came on with Keith. I, I I mean, she was already there when you got on board. But from what you've learned after the fact, what did she bring to the equation that he didn't already have? Well, one, she was a master trainer of master trainers in neurolinguistic programming. Okay. And she, so she had a lot of experience in that. And then she was also a, a certified Ericksonian hypnotherapist. Oh, she was? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So Nancy came in with both of those things and didn't particularly have a moral compass against using those 
uh, without people knowing what was happening to them. Right. And then, uh, and then she also had, um, she also had contacts to the community that Keith didn't have. Okay. You know, she, she had, um, she had a therapeutic practice, but she also did a lot of, um, Gover, she had a uh, she had a contract with Con Ed, you know, where she went in and she worked with um, Con Ed is a big um, power company on mm -hmm. the East Coast, mm -hmm. and so she went in. She worked with workers at the Con Ed and stuff like that. She did a lot of um, corporate training and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and so she had contacts that Keith didn't have, mm. and so and he needed a front woman. And he needed a front woman that had, um, that was clean. Mm -hmm. Didn't have his dirty past with a bar order on no more MLMs or anything like that. Right. And so um, I think that she was a good mark in that sense. But then she, one of the things I found out, Nancy kind of took me under her wing when I came in. You know, I had mm -hmm. a lot of energy. I was, you know, forward i wouldn't say like in you know like i wasn't a big money maker or anything like that but i had a successful business you know kind of thing mm -hmm. and um you know had a lot of drive in regards to thinking you know like i wasn't the kind of person that like if i set my mind to something it, like it took me forever to like get up and get things done kind of thing and i think she realized that early on you know, like if I said, you know, I was going to do something, I did it and yeah. stuff. And so I actually went up the stripe path of Nexium pretty quickly, mm. you know, and stuff like that. Like, um, you within... were kind of a, kind of a true believer. Right. And well, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you know, I, go, 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 let's do this. This is the thing. Yeah, I want to I yeah. make this a reality. I want to work this thing. I want this to work. Like you had to be a proctor to open up a center. Yeah. And so like within a year I was a, you know, three-stripe proctor and I, I had the, you know, groundbreaking my opening of my center mm. kind of thing. And, and, and people, you know, I was well-liked in, in the community and stuff like that. And people are like, wow, how are you doing this? You know, I filled intensives in my area and stuff like that. And um, so it was, you know, and I don't want this to sound egotistical because I don't mean it that way, but I was kind of a superstar. You know, mm -hmm. I go back to Albany and people be like, wow, you know, Susan's here and stuff like that. And I wasn't, I was never really, I'm not a clicky kind of person. So like I got along with everybody, you know, I wasn't in the inner, inner circle kind of thing. Yeah. And I found Keith kind of creepy, you know, like I, I didn't really like Keith. Hmm. Yeah. You know, like day five of my first intensive, it was New Year's Eve. And they had a big New Year's Eve party and like people, he came in and did a forum at, at our intensive. And I, I just thought he was kind of boring. Yeah. You know, huh. you know huh. people would ask him questions and like, I didn't have any questions to answer him. And like, he would go on and on about things. And I thought, oh my God, this guy's really boring. Like, why do you like, and then at the party, people like hounded him, you know, like he was sitting down at a table and people were like all over him. And, and I thought, mm. and so, um. I never went over to the table and like Lauren Salzman came up and she said, why aren't you over talking to Keith? And I said, well, he's got a lot of attention, you know? And I said, you know, it's not really my thing. 
And she said, what do you mean it's not his? It's Keith, you know? And I said, mm, not my thing, you know? Hmm. And so, and then Nancy came over later. And she goes, why aren't you over talking to Keith? And I said, mm, not my thing, you know? I said, he's got plenty of company, you know? And she said, it's Keith, it's the Vanguard. And I said, mm, not my thing, you know? Wow. And, you know, do you do realize how unusual that is, right? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, most people, as you can see, I mean, that's actually a perfect demonstration. There's the entire room, you know, you can't get enough of this guy, and you're over there going, Yeah, no, I don't think so. That's, I don't know, but my, my, my creep radar went off. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> good, good on it, good on yeah. it, you know. But at the, the end of it, uh, the end of something like that, you had to stand up and go, like, we're committed our, to our success, and you had to clap and you had to bow, and then you had to go through the line and do this little handshake kind of thing, and then everybody had to do the, like this little kissy kissy thing, and I went like, mm, I don't, I don't want to do the kissy kissy thing, you know. It's like he's creepy, yeah, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, wow. It's, like, uh, uh, like, give me some mouthwash. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it's just like, like, well, it's really, I mean, I, I, I don't know. You tell me if you think this, but I, you know, I, I look at the, what you're describing right now. And of course people came into Scientology and other groups too. And, and do this, they, they go so far and then they have something inside that just goes, you know, mm -mm. and they just won't necessarily take that full plunge that all the way commitment that oh this is the guy and and this is what i have to do now right kind of thing and falling all over themselves to to be all over this guy um and you yeah you just weren't that kind of you just didn't quite want to do that was there anything else besides his sort of creep dar your your creep dar going off there that <laughs> that kind of registered something i mean was it were were the were there earlier issues or problems that were also there or was it just nah this guy just ain't all that <laughs> well that was the, that was the first five days so i mean that's the first time i ever met him so i don't think there could have been anything oh, okay. earlier okay fair enough fair enough <laughs> so, i don't right, know right. it was just i don't know it was just something um something good I'll tell you yeah, that. I mean, it protected good. me, I guess, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. It was just, and then when I would go into, um, I used to, he, he loved to play volleyball. Mm -hmm. You know, I got that from, from the vow. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so it used to be really fun to go to volleyball, you know, cause it was, you know, one, it was earlier. And so whenever I flew into Albany, I always flew in to, in time to go to volleyball, mm. you know? Cause it was fun. Cause you got to play with a community, but then it became, he became very possessive about it, mm -hmm. you know, and he had the A team and the A team always had to play and you very rarely got to play volleyball. And so I stopped going and then Nancy would be like, how, how come you're not going to volleyball? And I said, cause you don't get to play anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. And she said, but you get to be with Keith. And I said, I said, so I get to go sit on the bench and watch Keith play volleyball. I said, that's not any fun. Right. And she said, but you get to be with Keith. And I said, so I get to watch the A-team play volleyball. I said, that's not fun for me. Hmm. And she said, but you get to be with Keith. And I said, but that's not fun. I said, I said, so I get to go sit and watch volleyball till six o'clock in the morning and go, and then I have to be at an intensive at eight. I said, that's not 
I said, why would I do that? She says, because you get to be with Keith. And I said, fuck that. I said, I said, I'm not a, I'm not a Keith groupie. I said, when are you going to get that through your head? Like, she said, that's a problem. Ah, said, there it is. I said, no, that's not a problem. I mm -hmm. said, why is that a problem? She said, well, that's your breach against Keith and you just don't get it. And I said, no. I said, I don't understand why that's a problem. Right. She said, that's the problem. And I said, he doesn't care if I'm there or not. Mm -hmm. I said, you care. You're vested because your West Coast leader doesn't care. You were nailing it, man. You were nailing it. I, those are those are important little bits of time right there. Nancy was really making an effort. Now, let me ask you a question. Because I have, I have rather strong opinions about Nancy, but they're not necessarily founded on. I mean, I've never been in the same room with the woman, so I, I, you know, I, I recognize I'm probably bringing some stereotypes and and mm -hmm. preconceived notions to the table as well, and I, I'll own that. You know, I, I have my education and my ideas about people, and I'm willing to change them for individuals who are who are not that. I'm told, for example, that in, I haven't yet had a chance to watch Bow season two. I'm mm -hmm. told she really honestly makes change in the course of that of that season. I, you know, I still have my doubts. Even hearing that, I'm like, really? Really? You know? But let me ask you, at that moment, at that time, right there when she's doing that, was she doing that because she was so enthralled with him? Or was she trying to just get you enthralled with him? Or what do you think? What do you think the motivation was behind this repetition of, but it's Keith, but it's Keith. When it's, it, this is a business thing. This isn't some religious thing. What, what are you talking about? You know, what do you think? Uh, I, yeah, you know, I think that Keith pushed her mm -hmm. to push me. Mm. In that, so I think Keith gave her a lot of feedback about the fact that you know, um, that I just didn't give a shit. Mm. So I think she got feedback from Keith, you know, and, and I think she was enthralled with him, but I think she was also afraid of him, mm. you know, and the fact that, you know, at that time there was one center on the West coast and I was building Vancouver. I mean, I built Vancouver long before Sarah Edmondson came in mm -hmm. and Vancouver would have been my first satellite center. So I would have got a percentage of Vancouver for the rest of my life had I stayed in, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the grand scheme of thing, you know, they wanted beautiful, rich people is really what they were going for. And I didn't fit either one of those categories. Right. Know? Right. So no, they were looking me, more for the Sarah Edmondson's of the world. Well, and the Mark Vicente's, right. and the, you know, good looking, the, uh, dynamic actors, actors yeah. exactly. The rich, the rich, you either had to be rich or kind of famous. And I didn't fit either one of those. You know, I was a, I, I was a cowgirl, farm girl, lesbian. I didn't fit into <laughs> any of those ca categories. I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, I went into the Navy before there was a don't talk, don't tell. Matter of fact, when I went into Navy, I didn't really even know I was a lesbian. You know, I mean, I, I kind of knew, but I didn't know, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And then, um, 
it was, it was funny, a little sidebar thing. I lived in the barracks when I first went in, you know, and it, you had, you shared a room with somebody, but you had a room. It wasn't like bunk beds, open bay bunk beds kind of thing. And um, I, I became really good friends with this woman and she, she, she was in a different room and, and downstairs they had pool tables and stuff like that. And uh, some of the girls started hitting on me and it was really confusing for me. Oh, really, wow. Oh, wow. That's it was funny. really, really confusing for me. So yeah. I was talking to my friend Ivy, I went to her room and I knocked on the door and I said, there's a couple girls down in the pool room and they started hitting on me. And she goes, well, of course they did. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, look at you, look at the way you carry yourself and stuff like that. She goes, you're just a, you're just a lesbian chick bait. And I said, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? She goes, it's the way you carry yourself, Susan. And she, and I said, I don't understand. She goes, well, you don't carry a purse. You don't wear makeup. You don't wear girly clothes. And I said, yeah, but I, I, I grew up with horses and stuff. It's just the way I am. And she, so after that, I started wearing makeup and I went and bought a purse and everything and stuff like that. <laughs> and then I had guys hitting on me all the time. So it's like, I couldn't win or lose. You right, know? right, uh, right. Yeah, so it took me a little while to kind of figure out myself, you know. Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. So, but anyways, and I go into Nexium, and then it's like when the Mexi Mexicans started to come in, you know, they're like really Catholic and really strict. And Nancy pulls me aside. She goes, "You can't be gay anymore." And I'm like, "What the hell are you talking about?" She goes, "The Mexicans." She said they have a hard time with gay people. I said, so what? She said, you can't be gay anymore. And I'm like, oh she, my God. She was literally just trying to command the gay away? Like yeah, for real? Said, I said, so you want me to go back in the closet? She goes, yes, please. You have to, you can't be gay in an intensives. I said, oh my God. All right. So you don't want me to talk about, you don't want me to talk about being a lesbian. Oh, I can do that. Okay. Wow. <laughs> like, oh my God. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's like, wow, man. That's, that is something. So I just I'm, think a, a part of what, what they were trying to do is yeah. it, now in retrospect, I think they were trying to drive me out. You know, once Sarah got to a certain level, is mm -hmm. I when I look back in their behavior towards me, it's like, oh God, were they were they trying to kick me out without saying we want you to leave? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I mean, it's 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 certainly conjectural, but it certainly seems to me that you represented something that was kind of unique and different in that group. In that you were not somebody who was going to ever. Um, or at least not easily, succumb to Keith's main superpower and point of leverage over women and over oh, no. the group, right? Yeah. You were never going to go there. And I think that was sort of your kryptonite there in that in that time and place. Yeah. Well, when Jeunesse first came out, you know, their women's program, yeah. they, they only had a weekend they had a weekend program and then they had like little Jeunesse groups that you could do it. Like you could start a Jeunesse group and it could be based on whatever you wanted to. Like they had Jeunesse knitting groups and baking groups and stuff like that. Oh, really? And I, yeah. And so I went to the first Jeunesse. Oh, we weekend. should, we should stop for a second. Tell the audience what's, what's a Jeunesse group. What is that? 
Chinesse was their women's program. Okay, because you know? they had a men's yeah. program and a women's program. Well, they didn't have the men's program yet. Yeah, okay. But the Chinesse yeah, that, started first. Yeah, Chinesse yeah. started first. And it was supposed to be like a women's empowerment group. And this is before DOS. Yep. The, yep. What what came out at the very end. So um, I went to a Jeunesse. They, they put one on in the Seattle area. So Nancy said, oh, you should come to Jeunesse. And so I did. And um, it was like the most misogynistic, horrible program I ever went to. It was like, you know, they were talking about why men could not be monogamous. And I'm thinking like, oh, my God, this is like knock women in the head, drag them back to the cave and rape them. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking like I went to Nancy and I said, what bullshit are you teaching? And she said, oh, well, you know, it's really, you know, men are not really hardwired to be monogamous. And I but women, you know, they need men to protect them. And I said, like, who the hell came up with this, Keith? You know, is this Keith's way of justifying why he should have multiple sex partners? I said, this is bullshit. I said, I said, you're setting women back, back to the, the 1900s. I said, this is such bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, women need to be protected because they, they have the babies and they need a man's name and they need to be protected. I said, like, you know, is this for Armageddon? Are you waiting for Armageddon to happen? You know, I said, this is bullshit. I said, I don't want any part of this. I said, you'll never teach it at my center. Wow. What, I said, when was this? you know, when did this happen? This was in like, I don't know, 2007, 2008. I don't know. I, you know, I have to say only because I am shocked you lasted another two years before you got out of there in 2009. Right. I well, mean, if you, you had a Scientology mission holder, which is basically the equivalent of what you were. You were mm -hmm. operating a field center remote from the main activity in, Al in Albany, which was the sort of center of the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. And in Scientology, they have what are called missions. And it's up to the mission holder to make it go. They're not getting any financial help from, from central management. Right. It's a fr it's, in fact, it it's used to be called a franchise. That was the franchise system that Hubbard developed in the 50s and right. 60s. And then they changed it to, you know, religious terminology with a mission. But the concepts are the same. And even Scientology mission holders were getting more of an income percentage than, than you were, which is fascinating to me. But, um, but if a mission holder even dared breathe any of this kind of stuff to a middle manager or an upper management person like a Nancy Salzman equivalent in Scientology, it would have been, I mean, immediate and, and not unthinking justice would have just like rained down on the person immediately if they said, well, did David Miscavige come up with this bullshit? I'm not teaching this shit in my mission. Oh my God, the walls would come down. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm just in terms of parallels, I find this interesting. Nancy was so willing to, you know, listen to your, your just straight up, fuck off this is not happening here you know that's that's really kind of cool of you you know but what what happened what did Na i mean did nancy just kind of roll over and go okay or what what happened with that oh of course she didn't just roll over yeah, I, mean, I didn't think so obvious well obviously she gave me a piece of her mind but you know i yeah. mean what could she do i paid the rent 
Right. You know? Right. And every time she she wanted to give me feedback about that, I said, Well, when you start paying the rents and you pay the bills at my center, you can tell me what you can what I can do and what I can't do. <laughs> I love it. You know, and I and I learned it. that I, I learned that lesson early on when when I bought my first house and I told my mom she couldn't smoke in it. Ah. You know, yeah. and she had a cow about it. And I said, you know, when you when you pay, because I remember my mom used to say when I would say, you know, like, I don't like those clothes. And she said, well, when you get a job and you can yeah. buy your own clothes, you can buy, you know, you can wear whatever you want, you know. Right. And so when I told Nancy when she was having a cow about it, I said, well, when you pay when you pay the bills at my center, you can do you can tell me what I can and can't do. Right. But until then, you can't tell me what I can and can't do at my center. But, but I'll teach the curriculum that the way you want me to teach it, but I'm not teaching this at my center. Yeah. Yeah. And there was there was no commissions to be made from teaching Jeunesse. All the com all 100% of the commissions went to Nexium. Same thing if I enrolled somebody into a VIP training. Oh, what's that? Well, it was they had a VIP. It was a 16-day. Well, it's actually the first five days of the 16-day training. Is the VIP training? Was the VIP training. Like okay. if you enrolled Edgar Brofman into a training, he went to a VIP training. Mm. Right? Okay. You didn't get any commissions from that. All the commissions went because they charged more money. And, but you didn't get any money from that because I what sent a somebody. Foolish, foolish, foolish structure. I know because I sent somebody to a VIP training and it was this woman that I knew and um, she knew she was personal friends with Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I. I called Nancy and I said, I know this, this woman and she's personal, her friends go to the same school as Steve Jobs. And she knows Steve Jobs personally, they hang out together. And so she could come to my center mm -hmm. and take the five days or I could send her to the VIP training. Oh, honey, send her to the VIP training, blah, blah, blah. And it was a lot more expensive to send her to the VIP training. Right. right? But to so not I even said, get a commission on it, it, it de-incentivizes it. It's just so weird to me. They're, they were so fucking greedy. They couldn't even structure something that would incentivize the lower levels to keep it going. You know, it's so, just so, so MLM. It's so MLM. So I sent her to VIP training. They treated her like crap because she had kids and they were trying to teach her how, like, like you know, you know, when somebody's really, really wealthy, they're going to treat their kids differently. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, give them certain things that, you know, maybe you wouldn't, shouldn't give a kid. Right. Cause they're parasites. Right. Kind of thing. And so I, I'm I sorry, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by that. What, what, what are you saying? Well, you know, like, um, if you buy your kid a laptop, mm -hmm. you know, maybe your kid didn't earn the laptop. Oh, sure, right. sure, sure, sure. Way rich people right. definitely spoil their kids. No question about that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they I give her a hard time about, because part of the uh, five days is paras uh, workshops on parasite producer, right? Oh, got it. And they were basically accusing her of that. Right, right. And so she had a horrible time at the five day because mm -hmm. they confronted her about that kind of stuff. So, and then I, my commissions don't show up. So I call, uh, I call 
um, accounting to find out where, oh, well, we don't pay commissions on that. So then I confront Nancy and I say, well, what's my incentive to ever refer somebody there? One, you treated her like shit, so you're not going to get to Steve Jobs. Yep. You know, now my chances of ever getting to Steve Jobs through this woman is blown, right? Yep. You blew it for me, right? And you treated her like shit, so now I'm never going to get her to even come to the last 11 days, and I don't get any fucking commissions. Like, what the hell? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> Basically, yeah. What did she have to say for herself? Oh, well, she just justifies herself, you know? Yeah, sure. Blame the well, victim, Well, maybe it wasn't appropriate. I said, you told me to send her to you, right? And you would take good care of her, and you just blew it because you're, you know, you're heads up your ass when it comes to you know certain people you would have never treated edgar brofman that way even though his kids give you millions of dollars 68 million dollars keith blew in the commodities market of their money 68 you know? million dollars good god that is you know? not chump change man in any I mean, on any metric wow you know wow so Huh. How interesting. I just, I, I just, I love the, I love the compare and contrast on this because it's just so interesting how these little cult worlds build themselves up and, and end up, you know, tearing themselves apart over this kind of, of stuff. And it's just so, it, it's just such greed and avarice going on here. But, uh, but again, also these kind of stories, I mean, there's so many in Scientology as well of like real VIP people getting interested in getting completely you know, annihilated and never want to have anything to do with it again. And all the hundreds of hours of work that get on, that was involved in getting them there. And then the classic party line is, oh, well, they're just an SP anyway. Fuck them. Right. Right. Yeah. You know? I mean, she blew it with Edgar Brofman, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you know, and then she, she blows it. I mean, it, it, her anger would get in the way so much, you know, but when you're talking about how she was in the vow, Nancy, how Nancy was in the vow. Yeah. I don't think that she ever really, I mean, there's certain things I think that she started to realize, but she, I don't think she ever really gets it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't think to this day, unless she's woke up in prison, I don't think she really gets it. I mean, nobody's gotten a letter. Right. You know? She could, she could go to the judge and say, Hey, look, I want to send out some apology letters. Right. You know, and he would gladly let her do that. Right. You know, I went to her sentencing and she just, you know, she didn't apologize to anybody in the courtroom. Right. That was at. Yeah, at I don't. Sentencing. I really, I mean, people have tried to tell me it is absolutely positive that she made change. She totally got it. She saw what was wrong. I haven't, like I said, I haven't watched it yet for myself, but I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't you buy know. it for a minute. She's a really good um, actor when it comes to, um, um, emotional control. Yeah, that's that exactly. And yeah. then NLP stuff. And when you, when you put yourself into applying and utilizing that as a tool of manipulation and control for decades, which is exactly what she did right next to a sexual predator who she enabled and justified I don't think she's any, come anywhere near close to realizing the magnitude of the impact she personally is responsible for on hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives in a very negative way. That's a hard pill to swallow. And so I get how hard it could be for her to get that. But 
I just, I don't think she's gotten anywhere near that yet. Mm-mm. Well, she shows and mm-hmm. uh, when she talks about nature, nature of emotions mm-hmm. in the, um, the vow to, mm-hmm. she shows, she demonstrates exactly how she can control her emotions Right. in, in that. Um, and then she, um, like she called herself a psychiatric nurse throughout the whole time and that she was a therapist. Well, one, she wasn't a licensed therapist. Mm-hmm. You know, she was an NLP practitioner in Ericksonian hypnosis. And then, so I asked her one day, we were going off for coffee and I said, so um, how did you, how did you charge insurance clients? And she said, oh, well, there was a woman in our practice that was licensed to charge insurance um, clients. And so she would charge our clients and then take a percentage. <laughs> I just kind of cringed. And I said, you know, that's insurance fraud, right? And it said, and as soon as the, you put the bill in the mail, because back then they didn't have um, online billing. Uh-huh. And I said, as soon as you put, I said, as soon as you put the bill in the mail, that becomes mail fraud. Yep. And she said, oh, oh, Susan, you're just, you're just so straight and narrow. And I said, mm, yeah, but, you know, cause I, you know, I build in clients, you know, and in my massage practice, I'd have, you know, people got in a car accident or something and they'd say, oh, could my husband come in and take one of my massages? And I'd be like, no, um, I said, that's, that's against the law. <laughs> <laughs> oh well who would know and i'd say you your husband and me <laughs> mm-hmm. and if and if anything untoward happened the authorities <laughs> you know like right. come on think about this you know <laughs> it's like like no uh, <laughs> come on he could come in and he could come in and pay me for a massage right. but not through your insurance company <laughs> exactly come on guys and then she also said she was a psychiatric nurse. And I said, oh, so one day, another day, I said, where did you get your, your training? And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's a specialty, you know, psychiatric nursing is a specialty. So like, where did you go get your training? She said, well, um, I didn't. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I have all this background. And so, and I'm a nurse and I said, no, oh, those two things don't go together, Nancy. You know, I said, that's psychiatric kind of, nurse. That's like me <laughs> saying I'm a minister. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you got an online degree. Well, an online certificate I spent 20 years in a religious cult right, right. <laughs> and I did the minister's course when right. I was in Scientology, there's an actual class to be a minister. I okay. did it. Okay. I'm a well, minister. I actually have a certificate that says I'm a minister because I um, my I wanted to perform my sister and brother-in-law's marriage. You know? Oh yeah, you can go do it. I'm just saying it's you know right. it's just like there's a lot more to some of these professions than I maybe not minister, right. but you know what I mean. Right. No, but yeah. that, I mean that I could say I'm a minister because I have a certificate, but like really, exactly. I, mean, exactly. I wouldn't go around saying that because you know I'm not really. I'm certified, but I wouldn't go around saying that I'm a minister. <laughs> you know, it's kind exactly. of like, a I think silly. that's yeah. I think there's a little bit more that goes into being a certified minister than taking a you know paying eighty five dollars. <laughs> wow. So okay, wow. 
what an experience. So what what was it that finally, I mean, if all of this is going on and you're still participating, I mean, I have to kind of wonder, like, at <laughs> what point did you go, wait a second, this is completely right. fucked. Like, what happened? Well, the reason I stayed for so long, even though I had all of these red flags, yeah. you know, like, this is a cult, this is a cult, this is a cult, this is a cult. <laughs> yeah. This is how I justified it mm-hmm. in, in my in my mind, how I justified it is a couple of reasons. One is all I did was teach a 16 day, you know, which I thought had some good things in it. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it. And I had this amazing center on the West Coast. And I had a lot of people come that got good things from it. And if anybody ever said they were going to go to Albany to take a training, I drug them into the back room of one of the, of the breakout rooms. And I said, look, this is what's going to happen. And I said, I'm not going to tell you to keep it a secret because they say not to keep secrets in Nexium, mm-hmm. but they're going to try to recruit you to move to Albany because either they fit in Keith's profile or they had, um, like I had a couple that she was a nurse practitioner and he was a chiropractor and they wanted to go back and take their, uh, 11 days, the last 11 days of the five-day intensive. And I said, you fit into Keith's profile sexually to the woman. You said that to her? Yep. Oh, wow. And I said, you're a chiropractor. And they're going to tell you that they are going to open up a healing arts center, which is a lie. They're never going to do that. Mm -hmm. But they're going to want you to be, uh, Shelly was a nurse practitioner. And I said, they're going to tell you that they want you to run the health clinic. And Tony was a chiropractor. And I said, Tony, they're going to tell you that they want you to run the chiropractic clinic. And Claire Brockman's going to fund it, but they're never going to do it. So don't buy into that because they're going to get you back there and you're going to be broke before you know it. Mm-hmm. But um, so just know that trust me in this because I know what's going on back there. You know, Keith sleeps with a bazillion women and they lie about everything. You know, they've told people they're going to start a healing arts center. They're going to start an Olympic training facility. They're going to do all this stuff. They don't have the land to do it. They don't have the architectural plans to do it. They don't have any of that shit. So please don't buy into it. I said, if you want to go back there and experience the mothership, do it. But don't buy into any of their bullshit about they want you to come back there. Really what they're looking for is people that will work for them for $15 an hour. But you'll never work as a nurse practitioner or a chiropractor in any healing arts center that they're planning. Yeah. said, but, you know, go enjoy your time. Meet Keith, meet Nancy, go to volleyball, whatever. Whatever you feel, feel like you need to do, but please do not contemplate moving there Mm. and i said and if you want to tell them that i told you this i said i'm not going to ask you to keep my secret but they'll just know that they're just going to beat the shit out of me for a while over it Mm -hmm. and wow and that was my when were you saying stuff like that that was this is near the end yeah 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 because I imagine the, the the cognitive dissonance of that, the, you know, well, this is really good stuff. I want to keep training. I want to keep helping people with this stuff. But Jesus Christ, the inner circle of this is so off the fucking rails. It's like a cult. I, I mean, that must have been a lot of noise in your head. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then the other reason I stayed in is I was in tremendous debt. And I knew as soon as I pulled the plug that I would have to file for bankruptcy. Oh, so, wow. Okay. So so their collateral over me was my debt that that's I got how, into. That's what you meant earlier. Okay. Now yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, we had a really good community in, in, in my area. And um, so... And, and people were getting good things out of being there, you know? And so I tried to keep the cult of Nexium out of my training facility. Right. Like in, like in your mind, was it a kind of thing of, look, this is cool. What we're doing here is good. What they're doing over there is the whack stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that I yeah. can see how you could work that, how that could work out. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then I did lose one couple to Albany. Uh, they did move back there and um, they bought into the fact that um, Claire was going to build a, a Olympic training facility. Mm -hmm. They did buy into that and they moved back there and they ended up being farm setters for Claire. And then, um, but I was able to bail um, one of them out when, when I actually did leave. Right. And so what got me to leave, what was the final straw was when I went back there and Nancy was she was in a jaded place when I got summons to her house. Mm. And um, usually if I showed up and she was jaded and it really agitated and stuff, if I could get her out of that mood by getting her to talk about what was going on for her, mm -hmm. then I usually didn't get a major ass kicking, mm -hmm. you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing. And so um, finally I got her to just, settle down and tell me what was going on. But what she told me was earth shattering for me. And she said, she said, first she started saying by the neck, the Mexicans pay in cash, which I didn't understand why that was a problem. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay. So like, why is that a big deal? And she said, well, we're bringing that cash across the border. And I said, well, why does Edgar Boone was the head of, Mexico. He was the first one to came. He was kind of like the Tony Robbins of Mexico. Mm. That first that first course I went to, that life skills in Detroit, Michigan, I was telling you about. Yeah. He went to that course and kind of took the curriculum from that course, went back to Mexico and started teaching that course. Mm. That curriculum and kind of became the Tony Robbins of Mexico. When that woman who took that training and then went to um, Albany to study with Keith. She brought a lot of people from her training program to um, Albany. Mm -hmm. So uh, Wh which fact, one that, are we talking about? Remember when I told you when I was in Detroit, Mexico, uh, Detroit, Michigan, mm -hmm. taking that life skills course mm -hmm. when she shut her company down, Oh, went, her. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, she should, she brought in a whole bunch of people from her training program. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, the first intensive I was at there, I think there were 38 people in that intensive. Okay. Wow. That's, that's, that would have been like, wow, this is really something. Yeah. There's, there's really something a, good going on here. Look at all these people. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of those people were from her training program. Okay. Later on, 
Edgar Boone was brought in from Mexico. She brought Edgar Boone in from Mexico okay. to, to take um, executive success programs. Then he went back to Mexico and recruited a whole bunch of people in from what he was teaching in Mexico. So Mexico grew pretty quickly. Yeah. And so Mexico in 2009 was Nexium's cash cow. They made the most money out of any place. Canada, Canada was very small at that time. It was mostly just Vancouver. And then uh, the West Coast was just the Seattle area. Interesting. California, California hadn't even grown yet. I mean, there were people from California, but they either came to Seattle or they went back to Albany. They didn't have any centers in California yet. And then... Um, so Mexico was really large. And when Nancy told me the Mexicans paid mostly in cash, I said, well, why doesn't Edgar just put it in his in his bank account and yeah. then wire the money up here? And she said, well, we don't want to pay taxes on that cash. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah, more wire fraud, you know, more, more tax fraud. No big deal. Yeah, and so uh, she said, we're bringing the cash across the border in $10,000 increments because it's legal to do that. And I'm thinking like, well, it's legal to do that, but you're not paying. And I'm not saying this to her face. I'm just figuring it out inside my head, mm -hmm. right? And so um, when Nancy had her house built, it wasn't actually her house. I think Sarah Broffman bought the house and then put a ton of money into remodeling it for Nancy. Mm. And it's a, this beautiful house in the suburbs of of um, the area where a lot of Nexium people lived. And she so she showed me around the house. And in the basement, she's taking me to this room that she called the war room. And in the war room, there is um, a table where, you know, they have these meetings and stuff. But on the way there is this huge safe. I mean, really big safe. It's probably the size of like three five drawer filing cabinets. Oh, wow. Like you could actually fit your, you could walk, you could kind of fit into this thing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah big safe. Yeah. And so I said, wow, that's a big safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? and it's like, like, wow. <laughs> you know, cause I hadn't seen a safe like that in somebody's house ever. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> you know, like, wow. <laughs> and so, um, and then on the other side of the room, beside that was one of those like really fancy workout machines that Tony Robbins had, you know, <laughs> like $30,000 workout. She said, yeah, that's for Keith. You know, Keith works out on that machine when he comes over. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, wow, big safe. Wow, really big, expensive <laughs> workout material. You know, and then in her um, living room is like, you know, $100,000 grand piano, you know. <laughs> well, maybe not that expensive, but a huge, large, grand piano that Keith plays on when he comes over to her house. <laughs> it's kind of like, wow, okay. You know, and I'm broke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're like... Okay, this is all nice, but <laughs> and we, then she's we... and then she's confessing that they're just basically ripping them all ripping off this money. Right. And so I'm thinking like, okay, so now we have um we have tax fraud and mm -hmm. we have money laundering going on. And so I'm thinking like 
And so she's telling me all this stuff and then she's trying to justify how it's legal to bring it across the border. But once it gets here, it's nothing is legal about it. Right. right? But I'm thinking like, okay, you can't freak out about this, Susan, because she's telling you about criminal activity. There's a difference between, you know, sleeping around and, you know, that unethical to sleep with your students and it's unethical to borrow millions of dollars from your students and $68 million in the commodities market. And, you know, like, okay, we're boarding on the edge of unethical um, uh, human resource issues, but now you're talking about criminal activity. Yeah. I'm thinking like, okay. And then she realizes what she's told me. And she looks up because she's telling me all this stuff kind of going like, you know, like this. And then she looks up and she goes like, what are you going to do with this information? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I can't do anything with this information. It's like, what could I do with this information? I mean, it'd be like your word against my word. Like, what could I do with this information? And I'm thinking like, God, am I going to make it home? Yeah, right. <laughs> or are they going like, to throw me in that safe, right? Like, or am I going to be in a cornfield in Iowa or yeah, something? Yeah, exactly, right. You know? And so I just do some idle chit-chat with her, you know? And then I, I say, well, you know, I have an early morning plane back to Seattle tomorrow, if I can make it on the plane. <laughs> Wow. Were you really scared or were you just, are you just saying that? No, I was scared. Wow. Wow. I mean, now she just told me of mafia kind of behavior. Oh yeah. Straight up. Straight up. You know? Yeah. No, now you're, now, you know, there's, there's actual criminal activity going on here. How did she, uh, did she believe you? Did she just let you go? <laughs> yeah. She just, I mean, we kind of did some idle chit chat kind of thing, Yeah. you know, but then, um, I thought it, you know, if I stay now, then now I'm just a part of, you know, I'm a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? No, you got it. There's definitely that's I'm glad that was the point of no return. And, and you actually did make a very good point there because you do have this bizarre, unethical kind of screwed up behavior by this guy. And that's one level. But when you once you start bringing in like money and fraud and tax evasion, now you're operating at a whole different level. Now, now this is a different kind of animal, different kind of beast, you know. Right. And and you were very, very right to get the hell out of there at that time. Um, now, without getting into all the nitty gritty, because we don't need to jump through all the hoops on this one, but I am, I, I would like to hear about the 200 fake claims and lawsuits, because you had to end up representing yourself, and you and you ended up winning. How? What, what's the story there? Well, after I left, um, I was told by, you know, when you leave, you start reaching out to ex-members, mm -hmm. you know, which I think I is pretty common. <laughs> yes. And so I was told by um, two people who had been sued previously that, that they were going to come after me. And, um, and so, you know, I started to prepare for that one. I needed therapy really bad, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so then I started. Well, one, I had to file for bankruptcy. And so I was trying to figure out how, it, how best to do that. And then I was told that they were probably going to come in as adversaries into my bankruptcy because that was their favorite place to sue people was in bankruptcy. 
And so I worked wow, at my talk bank. about kicking people when they're down. Yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. So I was told, um, you know, how to, um, that they would probably come in on the last day of, you know, your bankruptcy, you have to wait so many days before, um, it's finalized. And that I was told that they would probably come in on the last day of my bankruptcy before, uh, um, it was going to be over. And so they did, they waited till the last day till the last hour to file as adversaries in my bankruptcy. And, um, so then I started calling around to see if I could find, um, a pro bono attorney. Mm -hmm. What was and, the basis of their adversarial complaint on your bankruptcy that you weren't bankrupt or what were they? What? No, I, that I, I had. I, I know, I'm not really up on how, on how all that works. Well, one is that I falsified things on my bankruptcy. Um, and okay. then they said that I tried to extort, um, that I tried to extort them and that, um, that I released a part of their video. They tried to claim we'd met with Keith. There was nine of us that got together before I left. Mm. And, you know, that were somebody dubbed us as the Nexium Nine. I don't I don't know who did that, but um might have been a blogger. I can't remember how we came up we got that name. And we met with Keith for three days. And so um, Oh really? This was before yeah. you left. Right before we left. To confront him on his bullshit or what happened? Yeah. Oh, I well, didn't realize you guys had done that. I thought you just kind of took off. What? Tell me about this. What? Wow. Three yeah. days of like, hey, Keith, you're full of shit. Well, I, um, I had things in Albany, New York that I had to finalize. I shared a house with um, two other people. And so, and I had a van back there and I had, you know, personal goods back there and stuff like that. So when I came home, um, I didn't tell my wife what had happened i didn't want to implicate her in any of the information that i knew mm -hmm. and so i just told her we had to close down the center and that i had really good reasons why okay and so she trusted me enough to do that and then um i mean I had a center you know yeah <laughs> and we had finances and and stuff like that and so then i called my coach who was kind of on the outs anyways it was barbara boucher and um, she was on the outs. She was having a difficult time for about a year or two. And so I called her and I said, I'm going to close my center. And um, I said, I need to come back to Albany and, and close out some things. And she said, well, and I said, I can't tell you why. I didn't want to implicate anybody in what I knew. Okay. You know, and I said, but, um, and she said, well, and at that time that Nexium had con they were supposed to have the Dalai Lama come for a week and spend a week with Nexium. Oh, this is had, around that time. Okay. Yeah. And he had backed out and he said, um, you know, that he wasn't going to work with Nexium for a week. And so they had a bunch of people had bought plane tickets and all this stuff. So Nexium decided they were going to have a week long of workshops and stuff like that. Okay. And I had originally had bought plane tickets, you know, and, uh, you know, I already had a house to stay in and stuff like that. And so Barbara said, well, why don't you come back? There are a bunch of us that have concerns and let's meet. And I said, I'll meet with you guys because I'm going to come back anyways to get my stuff. I said, but I'm not going to stay. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I've made up my mind and I'm leaving. And so, um, so Barbara said, well, why don't you come back? But why don't you stay with me? Because I know your house is going to have people staying at it because we had extra rooms at our house that we rented out. And I sure. said, okay whatever and so we met with barbara and these other women and we 
we um, spent time. And so then we met with Keith because Barbara thought she could change Keith. So, oh, so she was I, still, yeah, no, we can, we can, we, he just needs to know what's going on. He'll change really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so I asked, I had bought a new camera, a video camera. So I said, oh, and so I brought it back with me because I was learning how to use it. And I said, I wonder if Keith would let me film it. <laughs> and I thought he would say no, but he said yes. Really? Yeah. And so I filmed the meetings. And so after the second day, I, I decided I wasn't going to go, but my wife went. And the third day was just to say goodbye. We're leaving because we'd come back and we'd watch the video and stuff. And he was so manipulative. So that's when I really, you know, I really understood how manipulative because I didn't spend a lot of time with him. Right. 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 But I got got how really, truly manipulative he was with people. And so we agreed not to share the video, but there was a, on the third day is when he said, you know, I've had people killed for my beliefs and the hair on the back of my head went up when he said that. And so I had to replay it three times for people to really hear what he was saying. That is quite a confession he's making there. Right. And I mean, so or, are, or bald faced lie to try to manipulate you more, but either way, that's, that's not, those are not insignificant words to say to people right wow and so he um so i released that part of the video on a, a private youtube channel mm. and and sent it sent it out to i think 23 people and i said please don't share this but i said i'm getting ready to go into a court case and if anything happens to me please take this to the police because I knew in that court case that I would release certain things that would expose certain things that happened in Nexium, ah. and that would might piss them off to the point where they might do something to me. Yep. And and I said that all in this email. Well, somebody on that list shared it with a blogger. Okay. And it became public, and so that's one of the claims that they had against me is that I went against that verbal agreement. Mm. And, and so, and so then they had all different kinds, like I ruined, you know, millions of dollars worth of their business and, and all of these claims. Well, um, I couldn't find an attorney that would, um, represent me. You know, they Googled Nexium and saw their litigious activities and they said, oh no, we don't have that in our budget. Yeah. You know, Cause it was going to cost an attorney, you know, 500 million or $500,000 to represent me. And so I didn't blame them, Jesus. but you know. Yeah, I know, I get <laughs> I, it. So you ended up having to represent yourself. Yeah. So wow. I reached out to Peter Skolnick. He was the one who represented Rick Ross. And I said, you know, I have to do this thing. And, you know, I, like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And I said, well, I can't represent you, but, you know, I'll help you in any way I can. And then I reached out to Joe O'Hara, who had been um, a consultant of Nexium. And he said, well, I'll help you in any way I can. And then I took this online course uh, that's called How to Win in Court. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and it just it just took you through like different kinds of motions, you know, how to subpoena somebody, what a motion to quash was, what emotion, you know, what different kinds of motions were. And so I studied that. And then I went into therapy and I waited as long as I possibly could to file for bankruptcy. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you have a certain amount of time and, you know, you know, and like how to deal with creditors and stuff like that, you know, how to write them letters and tell them that you're filing for bankruptcy. And then I worked with a bankruptcy attorney on, you know, how long I could wait and what's the best way to fill out the forms and all this kind of stuff. And, and um, so my partner and I both had to file for bankruptcy and then we both got sued in the um, um, Nexium put in a motion to adjoin our cases, which was really good because then I could do all the legwork for Mm. both of us because only one of us could work at the time. So my wife went to work and I went to work as our attorney. Right, right. (laughs) And so then I went to all the motion hearings. Oh my God, the motion hearings were so weird because when you go to motion court, the judge has a calendar of all these motions that he's going to hear for the day. And then a really good friend of mine went with us, with me to motion court. And we always were last on the agenda. It'd be Nexium versus Dones and and be like, oh, we're last again. And I could never figure out why we were always last until about probably halfway through the, the process. And it'd be like, and I'd listen to all these other bankruptcy motion hearings. And they were always really straightforward, mm. you know? And then we would get up there and it'd be like, it was like clown court. Hmm. You know, and because like, Nexium's attorneys were there, yeah, and they were just introducing anything and everything, whatever the motion was about, you know, right? It'd be like, why are these guys such clowns, you know? And the other attorneys are so so straightforward, right? You know, then it dawned on me one day when we were listening to all these other motions, and I leaned over to my friend Andrew and I said, I know why the judge makes us go last. And he goes, why? And, he, and I said, he doesn't want to poison his courtroom with Nexium's clown shit. Yep. You know? Yep. And I would catch them in lies and stuff. And I remember the day that I was there as the first day I was there as a pro se uh, you know, defendant. And the judge is kind of like giving me a stern talking to about, you know, these are very serious charges against you, Miss Stones. And I, you know, you need an attorney, you know, and I'm standing there and I'm like shaking and kind of crying. And I said, I understand that. Your Honor, and I understand you don't want a pro se attorney in front of you. And I said, but no one will represent me. You know, I've called, you know, pretty much every attorney in the Pacific Northwest and nobody, nobody will take me. They just see how litigious Nexium is. And, you know, this is going to cost $500,000 and, you know, nobody wants to take me pro bono. And, and I said, but, you know, I know you don't want a pro se attorney in your courtroom. And I said, but I will do my very best to represent myself as professionally as I can. And, and these, this is a cult. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said, I said, it'll take me about 90 days to prove to you that these charges against me are fake and that they are a cult. And these attorneys over here are representing a litigious cult. <laughs> And and it did. It took me about 90 days to catch them in enough lies in the court that the judge finally started to catch on that this probably wasn't. I mean, they're throwing the Brofman name around and they're throwing around, you know, they're a multi-million in a multi-million international company around and all the, you know, thumping on their chest about how great they are. And meanwhile, it's this little tiny outfit out Albany with with uh, a psycho and a sexual predator. Wow, yeah. being bankrolled by a couple of you know brainwashed women. 
How sad. I'm glad it, I mean, well, I'm, I am I wish it had not taken you as much time. I'm glad the judge did finally come around to seeing the facts of the matter. Uh, and you and you managed to succeed at that. Well, it took nine months. Uh, the whole thing wow. took nine months. and But it took them about 90 days to kind of catch on to that maybe they weren't being truthful about things. Yep. And, I mean, we had to go through mediation and um, to try to settle. And the judge that we had up in Seattle that was a mediation judge, she walks in with a big f- stack of folders. And she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you separate from the plaintiffs. You know, she said, I've done some research on this and I'm just going to keep and I'll just go back and forth. You know, and the mediation was just ridiculous. I mean, they wanted me to sign a statement that I had lied about everything that I said about Nexium, and I'm like, you want me to lie about lying? And right. she goes, I, under- I understand, Miss Stones. And then we had a two-day trial, and um, it was just so ridiculous. But the judge ruled in our favor. The only thing he found that I had done that was truthful is I had released a part of the video. Mm. You know, and, that, and I did. And I admitted that I had done that, and I admitted why I did that. Yep, yep. And I mean, when somebody says they've had people killed and there's four people missing. Exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or there's one person missing and three committed suicide, you know, and you wonder, like, their suicides are iffy, then you, um, you, you could be a little, I think you have a right to be a little afraid about that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's, so, it's not, a, it's not, I'm serious. It's really not uh some idle threat i mean people yeah. bandying those words about um it's a thing and and money yeah. and power make people nuts it, nuttier than they already were uh so wow let me um because we're coming up on two hours here and i want to start wrapping up because we've already yeah. we've talked about so much and there's so much more to talk about which of course means <laughs> i'm gonna have to have you back um, cause we got, I have so many more things that I want to talk to you about. In fact, maybe this might be a longer story. I don't know, but let me ask you about it right now is, is there a short version of this or should we do another show about it in terms of your experience with the New York state attorney general and what the hell happened there that it all just went poof and it took me to, and the New York times and the FBI years later to, finally uh nail this guy what what happened when you guys were in there pitching and it looked like something was going to happen yeah we don't know we never got an answer from them i mean we sent them lots of information um about all different kinds of stuff and then they finally said um don't send us any more information and we said oh okay you know and god we sent them gosh so much information and then we we thought, oh gosh, we have them, you know, mm-hmm. on so much stuff. And then um, we did just never heard back. And um, we can only chalk that up to they had so much protection in the Northern District. And well, I'll tell sti- you, I wish, I wish that were the only explanation, but I'll tell you the lethargy and lack of interest in prosecuting crimes like this in a criminal sense is, is uh, like, like in criminal court, you know, they, so much of this stuff gets shoved over to civil courts, a civil matter, not our problem, not our, not our circus, not our monkeys, you know, prosecutors. Ah, I don't think I can win this case. So screw it. I'm not even going to try. 
I mean, there's a lot of other nonsense that goes on in these in 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 yeah. deciding whether to take something to court or not. Not at all implying or trying to say that's what's going on here. Just throwing it out there that that also happens in these things. What the weird thing about it though is they contacted us. We oh, didn't did they? contact. Oh, did yeah. they? Oh, well, that's good. Okay, well then there was definitely interest of some kind. Right. Yeah. Oh. So that that was. That was well, the with thing. Rothman money, I could see why you could start thinking there could be other reasons. I get that. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's major yeah. money. That is major money. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. Well, we'll just leave it at that for today, but maybe we'll explore that more in the future because I would like to know more yeah. about that. The, the one thing I want to say about my court case before yeah, we wrap yeah, it yeah, up please. Is, Let's, yeah. is the judge made a ruling in my court case about the confidentiality agreement that we signed mm -hmm. that for a lot of cults that was precedent setting because yeah, they tried, well, they said that, um, you know, we all signed a confidentiality agreement and the judge set a precedent in my case that unless we are wearing sashes and we're in a classroom and the mission statement is read their confidentiality agreement that is not upheld. So nice. that if, if we're having a side conversation, like if I was at Nancy's house or we're at an event. The or she's admitting to you tax fraud in her basement. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so their confidentiality agreement is not a blanket agreement. Mm -hmm. So it's only if we're wearing sashes, the mission statement is read and we were in a classroom that the confidentiality agreement is up is able to be upheld so if you're in a cult and you sign a confidentiality agreement it is only upheld if certain rituals have taken place yeah and so if a cult is using their confidentiality agreement against you it can only be upheld in a certain window of time so like if your cult leader rapes you and you're or somebody in the cult rapes you and you're not within the confines of that cult's area your the confidentiality agreement doesn't mean shit yeah exactly exactly i would challenge the confidentiality agreement of almost any of these groups to hold up for real you know right. i i ignore mine completely I, I signed an nda when i left scientology and i i'm i have zero question that it has any validity whatsoever it is purely an intimidation tactic right you know yeah. and when they tried to hold uh one scientologist debbie cook to her non you know to her non-disclosure agreement she went in and spilled the beans for five hours and they couldn't pay her off fast enough you know, they, they didn't even continue trying to pursue confidentiality. They were just so flummoxed by what she had to say in one day of open court <laughs> that they were like, take the millions. Here's the millions. Get up, get shut up. Go away. Don't ever darken our door again. You know, that's what happened with Debbie Cook. And Scientology's really not quite been exactly the same ever since. So, uh, yeah, so I would definitely challenge those things. But that's great. That's great news on what happened with you with that. And I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. So a lot of times in lawsuits that cults really shoot themselves in the foot when yeah. they file lawsuits. Yeah. You know, it's it, they really it, do. Yeah. So um, 
And that's one of the things that I'm working on in with my law uh, website is that I want to work on, you know, helping people. I've talked to several um, solicitors and lawyers um, about um, helping create for somebody that gets sued that um, what I did will be yeah. recreated. It'll be a pro like a pro se attorney in a box so that, um, you know, if somebody doesn't have the funds that they'll have help like I, I had, you know, yeah. they'll have a course that they'll have a course that I can take. And then there'll be some attorneys available that can help them. Like I had, you know, that, that is a can... great idea. Yeah. Ah, that's a great, great idea. Uh, I wonder if, um, anyway, we, maybe we can talk after about, you know, other organizations yeah. you might want to connect up with on that who might be very interested in in what you have to say and offer in that regard. Yeah. Um, because that's valuable. That's really valuable because these because these cults can get litigious and there's a lot of saber rattling going on with their litigiousness because they've got money to throw <laughs> around and they're happy right. to use it to do exactly what they did with you. Basically harass you with the legal system. Right. Until a judge finally goes, knock it the fuck off, shut up and go away, you case dismissed, right? And that's it. It's done. But all the trouble and the money that you have to pay and the time and the stress and the anxiety and the depression and all the bullshit you have to go through, you know, they're not going through that. They're just throwing money at lawyers who have no moral compass and are happy to represent anybody who throws money at them. So it's, it's a really nasty, nasty system in that regard, you know, and it's, and, and so any resources that would help ex-members to empower and fight back against that and not have to go so far down the rabbit hole of despair on that would be awesome. Right. And then if they had a whole team to help them. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. A lot of people want to be therapists when they leave cults, but what if we had a whole group of people that just wanted to be like legal aid people. Exactly. You know? Exactly. I'll tell you, it's needed. Uh, yeah. For folks out there, audience members, people who might be legally trained or even paralegals or people who have understanding of how the legal system really works, not the fucking law and order bullshit that you see on TV. Just forget all of that. None of what you see on TV is useful to you in reality when it comes right. to court cases. Okay. Just dump all of it. You don't know anything. Real people who really are trained in the law, real lawyers and paralegals and, and judges and, and, and people who are connected with that whole thing do kind of get how it actually works. And those are people we really do need coming <laughs> into this space and helping the victims of these groups. We really do. I, I, I can't stress enough. We have the whole therapy side, but Susan, you're bringing up a really great point, And I'm really glad you are. This is really important for people. Yeah. Much yeah. needed. Yeah, big time. So I'm really glad you're working on that. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up, huh? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> I mean, we just have to kind of arbitrarily cut it off because quite honestly, you and me have enough experience here to talk about this for about another 10 hours. I, I, got, I got so many more questions about Keith and those three days, for example. I got all kinds of questions just about that. Uh, you know, the two days you were sitting there with him full time, I'm, I imagine that was quite eye-opening for you. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right, folks. Well, this is the, um, I, I decided along the way here, you know, I've produced a series of interviews called the Scientology Experience, where I have uh, interviewed former Scientologists who have shared their regular, normal Joe, not the Mike Rinders of the world, not the mucky mucks, but just the regular people who were involved. What happened to them? You know, what did they go through? This episode here is a bit of the Nexium experience. You know, it's a bit of a what what happens in this group? What do they do to people at at the at, at, at not just at the highest levels, but you know, at the at the lowest too? Because it's kind of you know universally awful all around. <laughs> and and so uh, so Susan, again, thank you very much for taking the time to share your information and story with me today. Oh, you're so welcome. Awesome. All right, folks. I hope that you found this uh, this couple hours of uh, of work here entertaining, informative, and educational. That is the entire point of this. And uh, I hope you will continue to support the show, support the channel. Of course, Patreon supporters are the ones who are really keeping this whole thing going. But everybody who contributes in this is absolutely appreciated. So thank you very much for all your support out there. It really does mean a lot to me. And on that happy note, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.